0: You're listening to the Essential Geopolitics podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. China's National People's Congress has approved sweeping electoral reforms for Hong Kong that will ensure greater mainland control by strengthening the pro Beijing camp and sharply limiting the ability of the pro democracy camp to wield power in elected institutions. What does this mean for the future? Here with guidance is Evan Reese, Strat4 Asia-Pacific Analyst at Rain. Welcome, Evan. Hi. Evan, what kind of changes is Beijing planning to impose in Hong Kong?
1: So essentially, these reforms will focus on two key institutions in the city, the Legislative Council, which is Hong Kong's legislature, and the Chief Executive, which is sort of the paramount authority within the city. Um, as of right now, the Legislative Council is partly elected from professional groups and partly elected from geographic groups. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but it's responsive to to the electorate in general. What it looks like the reforms will do now is it's going to add a whole range of new members to the Legislative Council, raising it from 70 members to 90 members. And it looks like a large proportion of those are going to be appointed by an election committee, which will give greater control um, by pro-Beijing authorities, in terms of who actually goes into the legislative council what that means is that the pro democracy camp which is you know popular in many constituencies and has gained ground in recent years doesn't really have any hope of gaining the majority in the legislative council anymore so this puts that check in place the second set of reforms relating to the chief executive will expand the body that exec- that chooses the chief executive um, from 1,200 members to 1,500 members. That sounds relatively minor, but it's important to look at the constitution of that group. What's going to happen now is instead of, you know, a large proportion of professional groups and, and other, you know, more responsive uh, individuals, you're going to have a large proportion of that body appointed by um, the mainland and by, by pro-Beijing institutions within Hong Kong. Short answer there is basically what this means is that Beijing can now ensure that whatever chief executive candidate it puts up will have overwhelming support behind it instead of sort of this lukewarm, anemic support. This really cements control over Hong Kong's elected offices um, in a way that that is subtle and sort of leaves intact the Hong Kong system, but ensures that uh, long-term control by the mainland is, is guaranteed.
0: Why did China choose to impose these electoral reforms now? And forgive the double-barreled question, how does it fit into the long-term outlook for the city? Right.
1: So, I mean, in 2019, we had massive protests in Hong Kong, which saw China consider a whole range of direct intervention measures, including potentially sending troops into Hong Kong. They didn't do that. What they instead did in 2020, in July or late June, was put in place this national security law, which gives sweeping powers to authorities to crack down on dissidents throughout the city, and they've used that in an escalating manner. The problem with the national security law is that it's extremely useful to to Beijing and and to pro-Beijing authorities within Hong Kong, but it's reactive, right? It's not proactive. What Beijing wants is they want a proactive measure to make sure that they can limit the pro-democracy camp, limit the emergence of a of a true challenge to Beijing's authority in Hong Kong. So what these electoral reforms are is it's a long-term means of ensuring control in Hong Kong um, in such a way that Beijing might feel a little comfortable easing back on the crackdown and allowing Hong Kong to sort of deal with its issues more internally, you know, with a guarantee, of course, that Beijing can step in and and will also have defenders for its interests within Hong Kong. In the nearer term, sort of the urgency and why they wanted to get these reforms out now is that uh, we have legislative council elections due likely by the end of 2021, um, those were delayed by a year, um, sort of with vague pretext on on the part of authorities over COVID-19, but they're, they're supposed to happen in September 2021. They might be delayed a little bit. Um, and, and then most importantly, after that, in March 2022, we have a transition uh, for the chief executive. So Beijing wants to make sure that all of these reforms are in place ahead of these key junctures so that it can proceed with them if it sees fit in a way that it doesn't have to worry about losing ground of the pro-democracy camp. Lastly, COVID-19 has been relatively nasty recent, recently in Hong Kong. That's going to start easing in the next few months, and that opens up room for protests for people to come out on the streets again um, without fear of the pandemic. Uh, and Beijing, I think, wanted to get these reforms in place and everything locked down before that starts to happen to, to sort of, you know, steal a march on the opposition.
0: And how will the US respond to these reforms given the United States' efforts to halt mainland encroachment in Hong Kong.
1: Right. So, you know, since the passage of the national security law um, and before, the U.S. has been very vocal on Hong Kong. It was very vocal under Donald Trump. um, And we saw Trump roll out uh, some targeted sanctions on Hong Kong and mainland officials connected to this. The Biden administration is going to be doing more of the same. Um, It's going to be proceeding cautiously. The U.S. is concerned about Hong Kong because it's concerned about broader you know democracy issues in Asia, and you know about changes in Chinese periphery in the Chinese periphery that uh, don't bode well for uh, any sort of opening up to the to the outside world or, or reform within China. But what the U.S. doesn't want is it doesn't want this very essential U.S.-China relationship to be driven entirely by an issue like Hong Kong. You know, especially given that Hong Kong is not a place where Beijing is willing to compromise. It's it's really a core interest for them. To ensure that the city is, you know, what they would call stabilized, but but really locked down in in favor of mainland China. So what that means, that cautious approach means that the Biden administration is not going to be going after Hong Kong's financial sector directly, you know, in a really direct way, or going after Hong Kong's access to US dollars. Both those things would really rile Beijing, cause issues in the US-China relationship, and and also, you know, they would be detrimental to US economic interests in Hong Kong. Instead, you're going to see more sanctions targeting individuals related to Hong Kong um, autonomy erosion. Um, We just saw some more recently come out on March 16th, um, listing 24 more individuals. You know, what this does is it certainly raises risks for financial institutions operating within Hong Kong, and it's going to require them to really scrutinize or continue scrutiny on their customer list to ensure that, you know, on the one hand, they don't have Individuals that they're conducting transactions with that are directly sanctioned by the United States, but then on the other hand, that they don't have Hong Kongers who are in the pro-democracy camp who could get hit by uh, the national security law. So it, it really just means you know more compliance costs on the on the side of financial institutions within Hong Kong, um, and you know likely the steady drumbeat of more and more targeted sanctions on individuals.
0: Evan Reese is Stratfor's Asia Pacific analyst at Rain. Thank you, Evan. Thank you very much. If you want regular intelligence updates on global geopolitics, including Hong Kong and the U.S.-China competition, sign up for the Stratfor Worldview newsletter from RAIN. It's full of geopolitical updates from our team of expert analysts. Sign up at worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thank you for listening.